Good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Cornerstone. I get the opportunity to open up God's word with you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free. We got the ushers. would love to put one in your hands. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for this to be our gift to you. And please use it. We believe that this book is not just any book. It is the word of God so that we might know him and love him and follow him. It tells us who we are. It tells us who God is. It tells us this grand, glorious story that we've just been singing about. We took the bread and the cup to remember Jesus, his body, his blood. We sang this song about how Jesus' death was applied to us so that we might be called sons and daughters of God. That is beautiful. And we're in this book of Matthew because we believe that God has called us not only to believe in his son, but to follow and learn from and apprentice, learn a new way of life through Jesus, his son. And though we've been talking and celebrating the work that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection, where we are in the book of Matthew is back toward the beginning. The origin story. Where did Jesus come from? Who is he? What's the story that he's been connected with? Last week, Todd took us through the birth story of Jesus in the the second half of Matthew chapter one, which is told from Joseph's perspective. In Luke's, we kind of get it more from Mary's side of the story. But it's this amazing story where we just see God calls Joseph and Mary to walk a lonely, hard path. Joseph, I know she's pregnant. I know the baby's not yours. It's mine. (laughs) This child was conceived within Mary through the Holy Spirit. But you and Mary are the only ones who know it. Take her as your wife. Everyone will have the wrong idea about both of you. But claim this child as your own. Name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves because he's the one who will save his people from their sins. And that amazing statement at the end of the verse where it just says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel said. Simple, radical trust and obedience in God. We're going to come back to that toward the end. But today in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to spend this morning look at, looking at all of Matthew 22. It's about a, a little over 20 verses. Matthew chapter 2. It's, it's one big story. The first part of it's probably pretty familiar to us. The visit of the Magi or the wise men. It's part of the traditional Christmas reading that we do at Christmas time. And typically we stop at the point where they come and they worship Jesus and they go home a different way. Why? Because the rest of the story is tough. Herod, the king, hears about the birth of this new Messiah as a threat to his own self-appointed, self-created rule. So he hatches a plot to kill Jesus. Hatches a plot and he uses, in that way he kills all of the baby boys that were in Bethlehem, which based upon the estimates, based upon the size of the town at that time, may have been as many as 20 baby boys. In the midst of that, God warns Joseph again through an angel in a dream to flee down to Egypt of all places, to be spared from the murderous plot of Herod. But in the end, it's Herod who dies first, not the Messiah. And then God calls to Joseph again out of Egypt and Joseph comes and settles in Nazareth. That's the whole, the main points of the story that we see here in Matthew chapter two. But the question I want to explore this morning is why does this part of the story matter within Matthew's overall point? How does this fit into Matthew's purpose of presenting Jesus to us as the Messiah and then training us as these apprentices in the way of Jesus? Jesus. 
Well, what I want to do over the rest of our time is we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2 from kind of three main angles. We're going to see the way that this story fits into Matthew's purpose by looking at the way he uses geography. There's a lot of place names, city names, region names. What does that have to do? We're going to see, like we've talked about before, Matthew riddles his gospel with allusions and quotations from the Old Testament to help us to see Jesus in light of that story. And there's a bunch of them in this passage. And then the last part that we're going to look at is just the way that different people respond to this news about Jesus here in chapter 2. The first one we'll go through pretty quickly. We'll spend a good chunk of time in the second part about Old Testament quotations. And then we'll finish up with the responses. That's where we'll go. So the first one, geography. I bet you came in this morning just saying, Lord, I pray as I get ready for this next week that you would just inspire my heart with geography. But that's what we are going to look at this morning. There's a lot of place names. And I would say that, that, that Matthew kind of sets all these little dots on the map for us in many ways for two main purposes. Number one, kind of like he did with the genealogy in chapter one, to give us Jesus's credentials. Why is he a viable candidate to be Israel's Messiah? And then second, he's going to set the scene for us of what we should expect from different play, people in different places as we continue to read through this book. Does that make sense? Well, kind of like I mentioned on the front end, we see, like we're going to start with talking about geography. We see in, in the beginning, starting like verses four through six, that when Herod hears that these magi come to Jerusalem saying, where's the king of the Jews? We come to worship him. He goes, I didn't hear about this. So he calls the chief priests and the scribes. Hey, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they quote from Micah chapter five, verse two, saying, well, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, the same city where King David grew up because he's the son of David. True, absolutely. But here's, here's the question that a lot of people were asking there in the first century. Jesus wasn't known as Jesus of Bethlehem, but as Jesus of what town? Nazareth. How can Jesus of Nazareth be the Messiah from Bethlehem? That's Kind of the big point of, of one of the things that Matthew's doing in this chapter to show us how Jesus is both. He is both the one that God, we find out in Luke, orchestrated through Caesar, ordering a census of the whole Roman world that takes Joseph and Mary from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. They flee down to Egypt. When they come back, they don't settle in, in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem, but up there in the north in Nazareth in an obscure backwater part. But in that way, what we find out later on in Matthew chapter 4 is that fit into God's plan too. Because not only in Micah chapter 5 did it say the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but in Isaiah chapter 9, it also tells us this story of a son who would be born, a child who would be given, who would be like light dawning in the region of Galilee of the Gentiles. These two big Old Testament promises come together in this one man, Jesus, in a way that only became clear once Jesus came on the scene. That's how he's demonstrating the credentials, the, the qualification of Jesus to be this Messiah. But the second thing, again, if we were to zoom out and not just look at it, the land of Israel, but kind of look at that whole region of the ancient Near East, Matthew, again, is setting us up with what we should expect as we continue to read through this gospel. The chapter starts with these, these magi from the East. And as best as we can tell, it was probably somewhere Babylon, Persia is where they came from all the way over there by the Tigris and Euphrates. You learned about this whole part of the map in grade school as the Fertile Crescent. Same area, right? So the Magi come from far in the east. They shall go to great lengths up and over the Arabian desert to come down into Israel to worship this newborn king because they saw a star. 
But what about those who were right around the corner from where Jesus was born? How do the people in Israel respond? Well, of course, Herod launches a plot to wipe him out. The chief priests and the scribes have all the right information, but they don't do anything with it. Bethlehem was a six-mile walk, like seriously, like a half-day walk from Jerusalem, if you take your time. But they couldn't be bothered to make the trek. Then when the plot of Herod is unleashed to kill these children in Bethlehem, where does God send his son? To Egypt, the ancient house of slavery. Why? Because the king in Jerusalem is acting much more like the Pharaoh in the days of Moses in ordering the, the, the children of God's people to be killed. The house of slavery is safer for the infant Messiah than the promised land. Do you see the irony of what's going on here? Matthew is setting us up to see that we should expect the unexpected. Expect that this kingdom that Jesus is bringing is going to come in unexpected ways and unexpected places and unexpected people will be the ones to drop what they're doing to be a part of it. Where those who we might expect based on language and background and understanding of the big story to be the quickest to respond will end up being the opponents of the whole thing. Do you see that? We're going to come back to those responses later, but that's kind of why the geography of this matters. There's a story that God is telling in the midst of this. So now let's talk a little bit, instead of that, of talking about this, these Old Testament quotations, because there's a ton of them in this chapter. And again, they're really significant in helping us to learn to see Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's story. And also to see the story of Israel in a new light that Jesus shines on it. We saw one really important Old Testament quotation in the passage we looked at last week. In chapter 1, where Matthew quotes from Isaiah 7 and that prophecy of a virgin who would give birth to a son and give him the name Emmanuel. And he says that was fulfilled in Jesus. But not just fulfilled, filled up with even more meaning because Jesus isn't just called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God with us. And we're going to continue to see in the quotations here in Matthew chapter 2, these ways in which Jesus fulfills by filling up with even more meaning these different patterns and thoughts from the Old Testament. Again, we looked really briefly at one from chapter 2 verse 6 where the chief priests and the scribes at least quote this idea that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But the next one that we come to is a little bit later, down in verses 13 through 15. Again, this is right after the Magi have left from worshiping Jesus. And it says, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph rose, and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And then here it is, verse 15. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Okay, what is this about? This is another one of those places where Jesus fulfills an Old Testament passage by filling it up with new meaning. You probably have a little footnote in your Bible or something like that. But the place that Matthew's quoting from here is the book of Hosea, an Old Testament prophet, chapter 11, verse 1. Here it is up on the screen. When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
and out of Egypt I have called my son. You see, so he quotes that second phrase. But who is the son that God is talking about in Hosea 11? Who's the son that he's talking about in Hosea 11? When who was a child? Oh, okay. I kept hearing Jesus over here. Who is it? Israel. One person or a whole group of people? I guess kind of both, right? Like God takes Joseph's name or Jacob's name to Israel. But here he's talking about when Israel, the people of Israel, when that nation was young, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. When did God call the nation of Israel out of Egypt? What? The Exodus in the days of who was the, who was the human person that God used to lead them out of Egypt? Moses. Okay, this is important to talk about for a second because sometimes we can look at, especially like in Matthew, where Matthew quotes an Old Testament passage and think, oh, it's a prophecy. Therefore, it must have been talking about the future. But here in Hosea 11 verse 1, this is not a future-looking promise. This is actually a backward-looking remembrance. This is a call back to the story of the Exodus. It goes on to talk about how though Israel was my son and I loved him, he's turned from me. He's rebelled against me. But at least here in Hosea, it's looking back to the Exodus. And yet Matthew says, hey, that's been filled up with even more meaning in the story of Jesus. What is this all about? This is an example of, of, of a, a tool that we're going to need in that backpack of ours as we continue to go through the book of Matthew. And it's something called typology. Typology. Let me explain it to you for a second. I found this great uh, explanation on the Ligonier Ministries website. Ligonier is an organization that was started by R.C. Sproul, who's with Jesus now, um, but a great ministry. And they talk about typology like this. They say, typology is based on the fact that God works in recurring patterns throughout history. And it says that a past event or person can prefigure or point forward and serve as a type of a future person or event. In the anti-type, not anti as in against it, but the, the, the one in the place of, the, the one that it was pointing to, a future person or event more fully expresses the truth of what came before. Does that make sense? That God works in patterns, that we should look for patterns, similarities in the way that God works across his story. And it's typically a pattern of not just here we go again, but development and expansion. That the, the, the later occurrences of this pattern take on even greater meaning than what came before. So in many ways, what we see here in Matthew 2, when, when Matthew quotes from Hosea 11.1, 1, is it's a, it's a little signal to us as readers to say, hey, what's about to take place with Jesus it's according to the pattern of what God did with Moses in the Exodus, but it's even greater. It's even bigger. As a matter of fact, on that Ligonier website, they, they go on and they explain typology by talking about the relationship between Jesus and the Exodus. Check it out. They say, for example, when you want to understand what these types and anti-types are all about, consider the relation of the Exodus to the work of Jesus. God's rescue of his people from Egyptian bondage typifies or points forward to the greater salvation from slavery to sin and death that he accomplished through Jesus in, in Christ. 
They go on, they say, the latter work, speaking of the work of Jesus, is consistent with the meaning. It's according to the pattern of the first work. In both instances, the Exodus and Jesus, the Almighty God himself rescues a helpless people. But his work also has a fuller meaning because while people can return to physical slavery, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Never to be enslaved to evil again. I think that's beautiful. Again, this one might be a little bit of a stretch for us to wrap our minds around, but we're going to get a cool number of opportunities to practice understanding this idea of types as we move through the book of Matthew. But the whole reason, again, why I think Matthew uses Hosea 11.1 here in chapter 2 is to clue us in his disciples to view Jesus in light of the Exodus as this new Moses leading his people to an even greater kind of deliverance and guiding them with an even greater word from the Lord. It also clues us in here within Matthew chapter two specifically to look for patterns and similarities between the story of Moses and the story of Jesus, which Matthew has intentionally woven into the way that he tells the story. Think about this for a second. If you're familiar with the story of Moses, Both Moses and Jesus were rescued as babies from the murderous rage of a king. And both were rescued, coincidentally enough, and not coincidentally at all, in Egypt. Remember, um, Pharaoh commands that all Hebrew baby boys be thrown into the Nile to be be killed. And and, uh, uh, Moses' mom gets really creative. She goes, I'm going to kind of obey that, but I'm going to put my son in a waterproof basket in the Nile so he doesn't drown. And I'm going to purposely put him where I know that Pharaoh's own daughter comes to bathe. And what happens? Moses is rescued from Pharaoh's plot to kill him in Pharaoh's own house. Crazy, huh? But again, think about the irony here. Pharaoh, pagan, godless king of Egypt, and Herod, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews ruling from David's city in Jerusalem, in the same city where the temple of God was. And Herod's acting much more like that pagan Pharaoh. And where's the place where the infant Messiah finds safety? Egypt. That's where he's rescued. But think about this. This one's a little bit harder to think about. Both Moses and Jesus were rescued from death as babies, while others were not. While others were not, other infant Hebrew boys did die in the Nile. We know that Herod did carry out a plot to kill the infant boys in Bethlehem, which based upon the best estimates of the size of Bethlehem at that time, may have been somewhere around like 20 or so infant boys, 20 families devastated by this. But both Moses and, and Jesus were rescued from death while others were not, because ultimately God would use them to bring rescue to others. Does that make sense? Later on, when it was time to call his son out of Egypt, God again sends an angel to Joseph and he speaks to Joseph in words that I think are meant to intentionally echo what God himself said to Moses back in Exodus chapter four. Check this one out. 
So the angel comes to, to, to Joseph and he says to him, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Why? Because those who sought the child's life are dead. Herod's dead. And then look at what God had said to Moses when it was time for Moses, who's hiding out in Midian for 40 years, to go back and lead the people out. The same way, go back to Egypt, not Israel, but Egypt. Why? For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. There's an intentional echo here. Jesus is that new Moses. It's time for an even greater exodus with both here with Moses and with Jesus. You were spared from the devastation before, so now it's time to go back and bring deliverance to those who are still in bondage there. But the deliverance that Jesus would come and bring would be even greater than what God did with Moses. That's what this whole idea of typology is about. We're gonna see this throughout the book, how the patterns that we see in the Old Testament continue and expand in Jesus. Keep that in mind, and let's look to the next one here. So back in verse 16 now, when Herod saw he'd been tricked, he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region. And Matthew even sees in this a fulfillment of something from the Old Testament. Look at the next one, verse 17. Thus then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refuses to be comforted because they are no more. He's quoting from something else that he says is fulfilled in Jesus. He's quoting from the book of Jeremiah, as he said, chapter 31, verse 15. And again, this is one of those places where Jesus fulfills something that wasn't actually a future pointing promise by filling it up with new meaning. The interesting thing about Genesis 31, or Jeremiah 31, 15 is that it's not a future-oriented promise, but it's also not like a past tense remembering something that happened before. In many ways, I think the best way to understand what Jeremiah was doing here, he's describing what was happening in his own day. At the time when Jeremiah is writing, the people of Israel, had, of Judah specifically, had been rebellious against God for generation after generation after generation. And finally, God brought the armies of Babylon to destroy them and carry them off into captivity. This was a time of intense grief and shame for the people of Israel. The town Ramah that Jeremiah talks about here is a town that's probably about six miles north of Jerusalem. And it was the place where the Babylonians gathered together the survivors of Judah to carry them off in chains into captivity in Babylon. This was the place where they mustered together the survivors to take them into captivity, into exile. And so Je Jeremiah writes, describing what he sees going on around them, seeing these mothers weeping, watching their sons being taken off into captivity. And he seems he, he personifies the collective grief of the mothers of Judah with this one woman's name, Rachel. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story, Rachel was the favorite wife, which even there he had more than one, but the favorite wife of Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it seems that, that Jeremiah picks her name, again, as a way to represent the collective grief of the mothers of Judah. That seems to be the dot that Matthew's connecting here. In the killing of the infants in Bethlehem, the mothers of Judah are grieving again. Uh, another dot it seems he's connecting, we find out in Genesis chapter 35 that Rachel died in childbirth 
while Jacob and the whole family were on their way toward Bethlehem. That seems to be a dot that Matthew's connecting as well. Bethlehem, mothers, sons, grief at the hands of wicked, godless rulers. And Jeremiah's going, there's that pattern again. But here's the catch. Here's what's really important to understand from this. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, is a really sad verse set in the middle of a really hopeful chapter. In the rest of Jeremiah 31, it's talking about how God's telling to his people, even though you're going off into exile, I'm not done with you. I haven't forgot you. I will restore you. And ultimately, it climaxes in chapter 31 with the promise of a new covenant. You broke that covenant that bound you to me as your people. I was a husband to you. You were unfaithful to me. But the day is coming when I will make a new covenant and take you to be my own again. Remember last week when, when uh, Todd told us that when we encounter Old Testament quotations in the book of Matthew, that it's, it's an invitation not just to read that verse, but to go back and read the passage that that verse comes from. Do you remember that? Read it in conversation with what Matthew's writing about here. This is a place where we need to do that again. Check this out. Jeremiah 31, 15, Rachel's weeping because her children are no more. We go to the very next verse, verse 16, and thus says the Lord again, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. You don't need to weep anymore. Why? For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they, those sons you're watching going off into captivity, they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. So what's the point that Matthew's making in connecting this passage to the death of innocent baby boys in Bethlehem? I think it's this. Yes, there is evil. There's grief. There is mourning. Like Ecclesiastes says, there is a time to mourn. But that's not all there is. There is hope for your future, even in the midst of the grief and the evil. Our God has a plan, a plan that he is working out through his son, Jesus, even amid the evil of this world to gain victory over our evil, to bring an end to our evil once and for all. The good news that that, uh, Matthew brings in here and Jeremiah brings in here in no way downplays the tragedy and the evil that these families in Bethlehem suffered. And if you know anything about the rule of King Herod, this was kind of par for the course for the way he did things. I'm not sure that the death of 20 or so baby boys in Bethlehem would have even made the front page of the Jerusalem Times of that day. Herod was a paranoid maniac. We know he killed at least one of his wives and at least two of his sons when he thought that they were plotting against him. He has a lot of blood on his hands that he will one day answer for when he stands before the very Jesus that he tried to kill. Yet for all of Herod's paranoia, his scheming, the abuse of his power as king, God protected the true king of the Jews. And in the end, it was Herod, not Jesus, who died first. God protected his son until the proper time when Jesus would die in our place. 
A few weeks ago, when we were reading through uh, Matthew chapters one through four on a Sunday, we took breaks in between to just respond in song. And after we read chapter two, we responded by singing that song, Is He Worthy? Because it seemed like, especially at the beginning of that song, really encapsulates what we're meant to feel, the response we're meant to have from all the tension and brokenness that we see in the midst of this chapter. Do you feel the world is broken? Yeah, we do. Does it even seem like the shadows are getting darker and deepening? Yeah, it does. But do you know that all that darkness can't stop the light from getting through? Amen, we do, don't we? That's the big picture of this whole section. God is working even in the midst of evil to confront our evil and defeat it through Jesus. That's the big idea. Now there's one more quotation that I wanna take you to, and it's a doozy. All right, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm not entirely sure what to do with this one. In Matthew chapter two, verses 22 and 23, at the very end of the chapter, it talks about how God then called uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus back into the land of, of Judah. He recognized that it was still a little too hot not temperature-wise, but like heat from Herod and his plots, Herod's son that was ruling at the time, to stay down in the south near Jerusalem or Bethlehem. So they go back up to Nazareth, which, again, Luke told us is where Joseph and Mary were originally from. And even then, in landing in Nazareth, Matthew sees a fulfillment. He says, they went into a town called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. But here's the problem. There is no Old Testament passage that says he will be called a Nazarene. The town Nazareth is never even mentioned in the Old Testament. So we honestly don't know what Matthew was quoting from here. Nazareth, Nazareth which is hard to say, was an obscure town even in Jesus's day. Remember, that's one of the questions that Matthew's answering in this section. How can Jesus of Nazareth be the Messiah from Bethlehem? Do you remember in, in John chapter one, when Jesus is calling his first disciples, one of the first guys that Jesus calls is a guy named Philip. And Philip goes and runs and finds his friend Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember how Nathaniel responds? Can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What's Matthew's answer? Yes, yes, something good can come out of Nazareth because Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah from Bethlehem. He connects that promise from Micah and the promise from Isaiah in a way that, that only comes to light in the new light that Jesus shines. See, later on, about halfway through the book of Matthew, Jesus makes a statement to his disciples that most commentators think Matthew includes because it's almost autobiographical. It's almost Matthew saying, hey, do you want to know the playbook I've been working from? It's this. Here's what he says in Matthew 13, verse 52. Jesus says to them, therefore, every scribe, a scribe just means someone who, who uh, was a recorder and, and an expert, like a teacher of God's law. He says, every scribe who has been trained, the word is literally discipled for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. 
What is Jesus discipling Matthew to do? Be one who can take this whole beautiful book and help people see and appreciate the treasures new and old that are in it. That's what this book is teaching us to do. But notice the order there. What comes first, the new or the old? See the new promises and the way the new treasures help us to see the old treasures in a new light. That's what Matthew is doing in this book. But again, the hard part when we look at this part about the, whoa, it just sunk on me. At this promise about the Nazarene, we don't know what the old treasure is that Matthew's bringing to light here. I would imagine maybe one day in new creation when I sit down and talk with Matthew or whoever we figure out actually actually did write this book. It's probably going to be on the list of things I'd love to ask him. What were you quoting from here? At the same time, though, like, like Todd said a little bit ago, the focus is going to be on Jesus. So I may not even care about this little detail at that point. But the point is, what's going on here? What is Matthew doing? Here, here's, let me give you one explanation that's been put forward by scholars that, that seems plausible to me. But again, take this one lightly because it's one where we just have to say, yeah, we're not totally sure. Now, here's what, here's what it is. In the Hebrew language, it's all built around these words that have a three-letter root. And so what you see up there is, is uh, the, the root for the town Nazareth. And now those, if you take those three highlighted letters, the kind of the N, the Z, and the R in our equivalent, those same three letters can also be translated as the word Branch. Hmm, okay, this could be, right? Because there, there's actually one significant Old Testament passage about the Messiah that uses this word branch. It's found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where it says this There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, using that same root, from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, who knows who Jesse is? Who was it? Thank you. The father of King David. Look at that. Group thinking. Well done, everybody. We thought we put that together as a group. Jesse is the father of King David. So what's the point here? It's talking about a time that will come when that promised line of kings that God promised to David that would never end, it's going to be cut off. It's going to be like a stump in the ground. And though it's going to look like it's going to come off and be, um, be cut off and be done, new life will spring from it. A branch will come from the stump of Jesse, from the line of King David. The rest of Isaiah 11 paints this beautiful picture of the rule and the renewal that this king and the justice that he'll bring. Now, again, could it be, it's clear in Matthew's gospel that Matthew is presenting Jesus as that branch from the line of David, as the son of David who's meant to rule as king for all and forever. But could it be that Matthew's almost using like a play on words, almost like a pun here, pointing out something to us that um, Jesus, the branch from David, coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, is born in Bethlehem where he needs to be born, but then grows up in a town whose name means branch. Could be. Again, it seems plausible to me. We won't know for sure, but the main point of this whole thing is clear. Jesus of Nazareth is, is, is the Messiah from Bethlehem. That's who he is. Okay, having walked through all that, here's how I want to spend our last few minutes together. 
I said a couple weeks ago that one of the main things to look out for in the book of Matthew is the way that people respond to this message. Because part of what Matthew's doing, including these things, is to call us as readers to evaluate ourselves in light of the responses that we see. How have you responded to the message of Jesus? How are you currently responding? How do you need to respond? So first, let's look at the Magi. How did they respond? There's so many fun, nerdy details that we could get into. So much we could say about these guys. But again, not much that we can say with a lot of confidence. We can be pretty confident they were probably Persian or Babylonian astrologers. We know that they studied the stars and they believed that the stars communicated to people what was going to happen in world events. But like, how did they know that there was a king of the Jews that was going to be born? How did this star tell them? What kind of star was it? Was it a comet? Was it a constellation of planets? Was an angel or spiritual being appearing as a star? Again, we can't answer those questions with a lot of certainty. But what we can answer with certainty is how they responded. They went way out of their way to come and honor this newborn king. Meanwhile, how did those who were right there in Jerusalem respond? Well, we know how, what Herod did. He launched a murderous plot to kill the children in Bethlehem. If the Magi went way out of their way to worship Jesus, Herod goes quite a ways out of his way to try to destroy Jesus. But what about the chief priests and the scribes? If Herod went to great lengths to destroy Jesus, the Magi went to great lengths to worship Jesus, the chief priests and the scribes went to no length to do anything with the information they had, right? They had one clear advantage over the Magi and over Herod. They knew God's word. They knew the promise that God had made through Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They had the right information, but they didn't do anything with it other than give the right answer to the Bible trivia question that Herod asked them. They never went and worshiped. But again, throughout the rest of this book, we will see these same religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, we will see them respond in many different ways. They'll be skeptical observers, kind of fishing around going, what the heck is going on with this Jesus? They'll become his critics, his challengers, those who try to challenge or deconstruct who he is and what he's talking about. By the time that we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, the chief priests will resort to conspiracy, to giving false testimony, to paying blood money to Judas to betray Jesus. They will be those standing at the foot of the cross, heaping insults upon Jesus. Those paying people to spread a false story that the disciples came and stole his body when they can't find the body in the tomb because Jesus rose from the dead. You see, what starts in chapter two is just kind of like ambivalence, unresponsiveness. It's like a cancer that metastasizes over the course of the book of Matthew until it just gives birth to blatant evil. It's the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of the Jewish people who will succeed in what Herod failed to do. They will kill the one born king of the Jews. And this time, there would be no flight to Egypt to rescue Jesus. 
he would willingly drink the cup of suffering that his father had given him to drink. And though at the cross, God did not deliver Jesus from death, he did deliver him through death. And through the resurrection, the victory over death that God gave Jesus, he has made a way. Just like we sang, if our God makes seas into highways, talking about parting that Red Sea in the days of Moses to bring the people through, when Jesus walked out of that tomb, a new way has been opened for the people of God through death itself to life evermore. That's the greater exodus that Jesus as that new Moses has come to bring. The question is, what will you and I do in response to this message? How are you responding? How do you need to respond? Like the Magi, have you responded by coming and worshiping this Jesus? Even if it meant going way out of your way to do so, allowing God to redirect your life. Or like Herod, are you threatened by the very idea, the thought of Jesus as your king? Hopefully you haven't responded with a murderous plot like he did. Though we do see that many, many people have responded with violence and death to this message of Jesus throughout history. As a matter of fact, later in the book, Jesus is going to say to us, his apprentices, expect that kind of harsh treatment from those who reject this message. But perhaps your opposition to the claim of Jesus as king over your life is more personal, more of an internal war. You think, from as long as I can remember, I was always told that I could do anything I set my mind to. Who is Jesus to tell me any different? I've built my life around the idea that I'm the captain of my fate. I am the master of my destiny. And so this idea that this Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, I cannot receive that as anything other than a direct threat to my authority over my life. And I would say to you, if that's you, today is a great day to raise that white flag, to drop your dukes. You are fighting a battle that you cannot win. And you are fighting against a king who does not fight with you. You are fighting against the king who laid down his life for you, who loves you and cares for you. You are fighting for a control over your life that you know deep down is just an illusion, that you know is slipping through your fingers daily. But this king, this Jesus that we're talking about, he loves you. He cares for you. His rule brings life and blessing and refreshment for your soul. Turn, come to him. Maybe for you, you're, you're, you're more in the position of the scribes and the chief priests. Yeah, you, you, maybe you've got all the right information. You've studied the Bible for years. You grew up in the church. But you know you've lost your responsiveness to God's word. 
You no longer respond to what you hear and what you learn. You've grown ambivalent, apathetic, maybe even just passively resistant to the word of God, quietly critical. Yeah, maybe you still come to church. You still read your Bible. You may even give, but the pattern of your life lacks a responsiveness to trust and obey what you hear. Again, whether you hear the word of God coming from me or Todd or another brother and sister who encourages you to step out in faith and service and caring for others or to get serious about dealing with sin in your life or to get serious about being a disciple who seeks to make disciples of others. And you look at the pattern of your life and you go, no, nope. nah, not today, not now. Maybe you're someone older and you kind of go, look, I've done enough in my day. It's time for someone else to carry the weight. Maybe you're someone younger and you go, I don't know yet. I kind of got some stuff I want to do some things I want to experience and try. I might get serious about this whole Jesus thing later, but right now I kind of want to keep my options open. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle and you feel like your life is going a million miles an hour right now between work and school and helping your kids with their homework and sports and pets and parents who are getting older and all that kind of stuff. And you're just going, I'm lucky I made it this morning. You might even hear this right now and go, yes, there's a part of you in your heart. You go, yes, I do want to seriously grow as a follower, as a discipler of Jesus. But I also know in the pattern, the season of life I'm in right now, I will most likely forget everything I've heard this morning because my energy and my time is already so overcommitted. I don't even have the time to put it into practice. Wherever that might resonate with you, I would say this. If your pat, the pattern of your life is marked by that kind of passive indifference, resistance, a pattern of critiquing but not contributing, a pattern of hearing but not responding, then I want to say two things to you as we bring this to a close. First, next week, Bob Krejcik's going to be up here and he's going to be preaching and introducing us to a man named John the Baptist who clears the way for Jesus with a message to prepare for the coming of the Lord. He says to repent, to turn, to change, to rearrange your lives, to be a part of what Jesus is doing and not to expect the kingdom of Jesus to comfortably fit into your life as it is right now. But repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So come next week, listen in on that one as we go through it. The second thing is this. Remember that this responsiveness that the gospel calls us to, it's not often big and flashy. Typically not. Sometimes we want to talk about the big things that we want to do for Jesus when the story of the Bible is much more about the big things that God does through the small but radical faithfulness of his people. Think about what we've seen from Joseph and Mary in these chapters. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Everyone will get the wrong idea about both of you. But claim this child by naming him. And Joseph did what God said. 
Joseph, get up tonight and go to Egypt because Herod's coming. And Joseph got up and did what God said. All right, Joseph, Herod's dead. It's time to go back home. And Joseph did what God said. Do you see the quickness, the responsiveness, the willingness each time that God completely rearranges Joseph's life? After this point, we don't really hear much about him again. We get this one little brief story when Jesus is about 12 years old. But what we do see in Joseph, what we see in Luke's gospel about Mary, what a beautiful example of ordinary people demonstrating extraordinary faith in an extraordinarily faithful God. Not trying to do big things for Jesus, but doing the things that God had told them to do in simple but radical trust and obedience. Don't you want to be like that? That's what this book is here to teach us to do. To be these apprentices of Jesus or learn from Jesus and trust him so that we might become like him and help others to do the same. Let's hear and let's respond in simple but radical obedience and trust. Amen? Because our God is worthy of our trust. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance to get to, to study it this week and communicate it to your people. It is big. It is rich. You call us to devote our lives to know and live into the truth of this book. Thank you, Jesus, that you came not just to tell us about yourself or tell us things to do, but to model through the entire posture of your life. Thank you for the reactions that we see in this book, the responses that people have that do provide us, like James talked about, that mirror to look at ourselves against. We don't want to be hard-hearted or violently opposed. We don't want to be apathetic in not putting into practice what we've learned. Lord, would you give us soft hearts, eyes to see, ears to hear, that we might hear and respond in simple, radical trust and obedience. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.